Uh, Troy asked me to come today and talk to you about the bubonic plague, also known more commonly as the Black Plague or the Black Death. And to kind of wrap that description around some of our current moment with COVID-19. And so I thought the first thing that I really need to do is to explain some of what exactly the Black Death or Black Plague or Bubonic Plague was. So this was a bacteriological infection. Uh, its proper name is Yersinia pestis, and it comes in three general forms. You have Bubonic Plague, which is the one we hear about the most, um, Pneumonic Plague, and then Septicemic Plague. Now, the symptoms for these vary, but they are all lethal. Each version can kill you. Um, I also wanted to talk about some qualifiers off the bat, too. So what we think of as the Black Death is really one pandemic that hits the world, um, except for the Americas, in the 14th century. However, and, and traditionally, this was viewed as the first occurrence of this pandemic, of this particular contagion. Recent research, though, has really pushed it back. Uh, there's evidence of people dying from Yersinia pestis as far back as 3800 BCE. Um, likewise, the farther back we go from the Middle Ages to these ancient dates, the more controversy there is over uh, just how much of this was the work of Yersinia pestis, how much of it was the work of other diseases, possibly just plain malnutrition, and so forth. There's also a lot of controversy about the numbers. Um, and the simple reality there is until very late, the recording of population, forget about, you know, uh, dividing up who's gotten sick and recovered, who got sick and succumbed, and so forth, is very, very piecemeal. It's not well, it's not well documented. So the figures that you hear tend to be these estimates, and the ranges can vary wildly, and we'll see some of this today. Um, now, the plague itself attacks the lymphatic system, and it leads to these growths in the armpits, which are referred to as buboes, and that's how the disease gets its name. So the first major outbreak or pandemic occurs during the later part of the Roman period, uh, really during the Byzantine Empire. And so the origins of this outbreak are Central Asia and as will happen repeatedly in the future, the plague follows the trade routes. And the major trade route that links uh, Europe, the Levant, and Asia, and the Levant is, is the classic term for what we today call the Middle East. The main trade route was referred to as the Silk Road because it brought silk from the East to the West from China. Uh, the Chinese empire very much restricted any transportation of silkworms or mulberry trees, which is the preferred food of the silkworms, out of China. Um, it was under pain of death. At any rate, 
We have an outbreak that begins in Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, in 542 and runs until 550. And this is during the reign of Justinian. And so how I spoke about you know, wild difference in estimates of uh, people who died as a result. Somewhere between 25 and 50 million people, they think, died as a result of this outbreak when you include uh, those who died along the route from China to the Byzantine Empire, especially in the Sasanian Empire, um, which is modern Iran. The responses that come up, there, there really isn't much. Um, they don't limit trade. They don't limit people coming and going from Constantinople. Consequently, those who can leave the capital do, which means that in many cases they bring this plague with them. Now, the second major outbreak or pandemic is the one that we tend to look at most often, right? This is the classic version that hits late medieval Europe uh, between 1346 and 1353. Again, it starts off um, probably in the foothills of the Himalayas and makes its way westward, uh, and, and it can be documented. There are, there are written accounts of it passing through northern India, passing through Iran, passing through you know, the Byzantine Empire, and as we can see on this slide, right, this linear progression, again, following the trade routes. And at this point, it's probably somewhere between when we add together Europe, Asia, Africa, probably somewhere between 75 and 200 million, although that latter number is very high. And this is also one of the more studied cases and gives us a lot of the issues that come up with pandemics even today. Uh, you know, today people dispute the numbers of how many people are sick, how many people have succumbed and so forth. And this is a great example to look at it in the past. So in Western Europe, uh, the population had kind of peaked earlier in the 14th century, meaning they had grown to the number that the territory could support and then surpassed it. Uh, so most Europeans were living probably malnourished. Uh, peasant the peasant diet wasn't the most robust to begin with. And add to that that there's now more people than the arable land can support. And you already had famines in 1313 and 1321 in different parts of Europe. So, and, and the theory is that most people were living malnourished and then you bring in this new bacteria or at least a bacteria that hasn't been seen in a long time and for which most people do not have immunity. Even those who do have immunity are, if they're malnourished, they're less likely to survive. But then we get into the issue of so the plague follows the trade routes. It hits the population centers, the urban areas, the towns and cities. And as services break down in the towns and cities, um, how many people are dying as a direct result of, a, of the plague itself or as a sort of collateral casualty, if you will? Um, and that can very much make the numbers difficult to get at even more so in this case, because again, the record keeping is really not very good at all. 
Now, as mentioned, the plague hits the towns and cities, the urban areas, and so society responds in a couple of different ways. Uh, in one instance, we have the flagellants. They're pictured here. So uh, they are the people wearing the black hats. And if you look closely, uh, they're actually not wearing any shirts. They have like these hooded shawls and number of them are carrying uh, whips, cat of nine tails. So here's the idea. Um, surely God has found us to be sinful. And so for, so for that, he has sent this plague to teach us to be better people. And we will show him that we've gotten the message by flogging ourselves on the bare back to reenact the sufferings of Jesus before the crucifixion. And, and that was literally what they did. They would have these processions around a town or a village, and these people would whip themselves on the bare back. Pause for a moment. I had mentioned at the outset that the plague can turn into a mnemonic form where it's airborne. So when in this case, you have people with open wounds who are exposed to an airborne virus. Yeah, this is not going to help them. Uh, another societal response that, that doesn't have a term but was and was really restricted to the elites in this society, those who could would abandon the towns and cities, and they would take refuge in the countryside. If a noble had an estate in the countryside, they would take their family, get out of the town, and hold up there and just wait for the plague to pass. Obviously, doing something like that, really self-quarantine, right, we call it today, um, you do have a better chance if none of you have been infected already. Okay, and so they would hide out in these rural areas and wait for the plague to pass. Uh, they tended to have a better chance of survival. However, again, it's restricted to the elites in the society. Now, the consequences of this, um, there are a couple of things happening here. Uh, we have economic consequences. Many historians look at this and say, well, the plague really undermined the feudal system. Okay, this whole sort of organization of society based on a barter system of land and you know produce in exchange for protection and military service. Well, now with the population of the towns in many instances depleted, peasants in the countryside are going to start to be maybe attracted to the towns. And the town leaders, the burgmeister or town council or what have you, that want to rejuvenate the town, bring it back to life, if you will, are willing to pay a significant amount of money to attract people to do the necessary labor in the town. And add to that the idea rife in much of medieval Europe that if one lived in a town for a year and a day, their landlord had no further claim to them, there, there's an appeal there. And so as people leave the estates, it kind of, and, or agree with the landlord, the lord of the manor, that instead of working their, working off their feudal obligations, they will give a money payment. Well, we start to change the economy. It goes from this barter system to a money economy again, undermining this previous economic framework. Um, there's a religious effect, right? One of the main roles of the clergy are, is to minister to the sick and dying. So any member of the clergy, monk, priest, what have you, 
that that fulfills this role on a regular basis during the plague years is going to be exposing themselves repeatedly to this virus. And so um, a number of members of the clergy die. In fact, it, it's estimated that the church never actually made up the numbers that they lost at, per capita as a function of the population. Uh, so other social consequences here. It contributes to what we call the waning of the Middle Ages. Um, you know, we, we all complain about 2020, right? How we're really just can't wait for this year to end and be gone and be done. Uh, well, I, I think we actually have it pretty easy because in the 14th century, Western Europe had a whole century of just bad stuff, okay? Not only do you have the plague hitting at mid-century, but beginning in 1337, you have the Hundred Years' War, or what will be the Hundred Years' War between England and France, on again, off again conflict. Uh, as I already mentioned, you had these famines. Likewise, you have uh, the Babylonian captivity of the church, i.e. the Avignon papacy, um, also the Great Schism in the Western Christian Church. So all of these institutions and ways of doing things that went to make up medieval Europe are really crashing on the rocks, and, it, and it's a prolonged thing. Uh, it's one crisis after another. And because there is so much death and upheaval, right, dances of the dead, like what you see depicted on this slide, uh, become a very popular motif around Europe. There's almost a fixation, a fascination with death because it is so omnipresent. Finally, there's the idea that this outbreak may have contributed to the rise of the Italian Renaissance. And it does this in a few ways. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the plague follows the trade routes and depopulates many of the towns. So especially in Italy, those who survived, especially those among the merchant and banking elite, have a lot of disposable income. And they are more willing to spend it on creature comforts, uh, art, and fine clothing, and so forth. And another part of this goes that with the decline in numbers of the clergy, there are few people there to sort of hold the elites to account. In other words, there's no longer a priest, you know, when a nobleman goes to have their portrait painted, the priest isn't there to say, ah, oh, that's the sin of vanity, you shouldn't do that. And so this extra disposable wealth goes to fuel the artist, because simply put, right, um, da Vinci doesn't paint unless someone is paying for him to live while he paints. And no, you know, if you're trying to survive, you don't have that kind of disposable wealth on him. I did include this, uh, again, one of the more popular pictures, especially this year, popular Halloween costume, right? The Plague Doctor. And this uh, comes up in early modern Europe and, and lingers. And, and I'll talk to, there are a number of outbreaks of plague that go on after this. Uh, through the 17th century. At any rate, so oftentimes people are curious about the mask, uh, this beak-shaped appendage. Well, the idea is, um, again, medical knowledge is extremely restricted in medieval, early modern Europe. 
when it comes to diseases, they're still working on ideas pioneered by the Greeks and Romans, what they call the Humeric theory, which is if you're sick, there is an imbalance in your bodily humors. Your bodily humors are these different fluids, blood, phlegm, black bile, yellow bile. And so an overabundance of blood was equated with fever. Fever is one of the symptoms of the Black Death. So a treatment for the plague is to bleed you. This will not help um, at any rate. Another idea was that the plague was spread by foul vapors, by bad smells. And so the appendage here would be stuffed with different herbs or perfumed rags and so forth so that the person could breathe through the mask and they wouldn't be breathing these foul vapors, they would be breathing these pleasant odors and that would protect them. Um, when it comes to it, you know, what's this fixation with foul vapors? Well, again, it goes back to the towns. These urban areas, uh, there really were not basic services. There was not a sewer system as we know it per se. Um, and very often, you know, people had a hole in, in a yard, right, for an outhouse um, or waste would be dumped in the nearest source of running water. Also not a good idea for general health, right? Um, however, if it's summer and there's a drought, uh, then this refuse piles up. And by the way, there, there is a certain logic to this, right? As, as refuse piles up, it is a breeding ground for rats and other vermin. And these rats and other vermin are the feeding grounds of the fleas that transmit the plague. Um, when colder temperatures come, plague numbers tended to decline. And some of this was, right, that, that, again, they didn't understand it the way we do, but that the bacteria that are rotting this refuse, right, that, that are making things worse, are not functioning as much. Um, the third major outbreak, which occurs, comes in the middle of the 19th century. But before I really get into that, I wanted to make sure to emphasize that even when we aren't having these this major sort of continental plague, there are outbreaks that are more localized and of shorter duration in different areas. Uh, for instance, London in the late 16th century, between 1592-1593, experienced an outbreak uh, that probably killed about 15,000 out of a total population at the time of somewhere around 150,000. There are also outbreaks in France in the 17th century, um, between 1628 and 1631. And one of the uh, best of the early modern historians, Jeffrey Parker, observes that probably about a million people died in France in those two to three years. So I wanted to emphasize that uh, much as I've been talking about Western Europe, the plague in this second pandemic was certainly not restricted to Western Europe. It affects the entire Mediterranean basin, uh, North Africa, the Levant, and so forth. And to give some idea, um, between Europe, North Africa, and what we call the Middle East today, right, 
between 1500 and 1850, there was not a single year that went by where there was not plague in some part of that region. Uh, to give you an example, in Egypt, uh, over in Cairo in particular, there were over 50 outbreaks in a period of 150 years. Um, there's a major outbreak in Algiers. There's actually several, one in 1620-21, another in 1654 to 1657. Um, and it is going on throughout the whole region down until the 1700s. Uh, and then finally, there's a third major outbreak that begins in China in 1855. And it's actually brought to China this time uh, by European merchants and then spreads westward into India. Now, the big difference here is that now we actually are have experienced a scientific revolution, right? Uh, we are developing a more modern outlook on medicine. And in fact, uh, a, a French Swiss bacteriologist by the name of Alexander Yerzin goes to Hong Kong during this outbreak to study what's going on. And he actually isolates the pathogen, thus the name Yersinia pestis. Um, now that we've isolated the pathogen, we can start to work towards a vaccine, start to work towards treatment regimens, and so forth. But there are still outbreaks which occur. Um, this one in particular, probably about 10 million people die in India alone. Uh, it spreads into the Ottoman Empire. It also makes its way into South America and through the trade routes and so forth. Um, there is another outbreak in India in the latter part of the 19th century um, that is really devastating to Mumbai. Okay, in 1891, the population of the city was about 820,000. Plague breaks out in 1896. By the 1900 census, the population had dropped between plague deaths and people leaving. Um, the population of the city had dropped by 40,000 in just five years. And, and it, it's worse during the initial part of the outbreak, 1896, there were probably about 1,900 people a week dying in Mumbai, uh, which again, overwhelms basic services and so forth. Uh, but by now, people have learned some things. Uh, and, and it comes out even as we look at some of these other minor outbreaks. This is a ward in Mumbai for plague victims. Okay. But some other outbreaks I are gonna to touch on to show this sort of learning curve that occurs. Uh, we have a, an outbreak in Marseille in France in the 1720s. And one of the things that the French officials do, and you see um, marching through the town, right, troops, um, they seal off the town Marseille is a port city, so they don't let any ships in or out of the harbor. They don't let anyone out of the town. They don't let anyone into the town. They're starting to realize that quarantine works, uh, though it can have some problematic effects. And we see this in Russia uh, during the reign of Catherine the Great. Um, between 1768 and 1764, there was what was called the Russo-Turkish War. 
and soldiers returning from the front uh, around the Black Sea brought with them plague, and it makes its way into Moscow. Um, probably about 70,000 people die within two to three years. The government takes quite draconian measures to stop the spread. Uh, they enforce quarantine. Any goods that were um, tainted, anything that any goods that people were bringing in that might have been infected with plague are confiscated and burned. However, the owners are not paid for their property. Uh, they shut down the bathhouses, which are a big part of Russian culture. Okay. And, and all of these measures actually resulted in what's called the Plague Riot of 1771. Um, for two days, there is an uprising in the town, and, and they, it gets out of control. The government had to call in the army, uh, to, and they rounded up about 1,000 people. About 300 were tried. Okay, so this can really undermine civil authority, too, even when that authority is taking measures that are deemed for the best interests of the people. And finally, uh, this is Napoleon visiting plague victims uh, at Jaffra during the French invasion of Egypt. After Egypt, they started to move up the coast into Palestine. And the reason I include this is, one, um, it's great propaganda, but never happened. Napoleon did not actually go to a plague hospital. And if he even went near it, he certainly would have been wearing a face covering. Um, but the other reason I include this is it shows that uh, the just the idea that there was plague present, the morale in his troops drops, and they really don't want to continue fighting. And eventually this campaign just kind of stalemates and fails. And so that leads to the influence of plague on history, right, or of the plague on history. Certainly we saw in this second pandemic of the late medieval period, uh, society and social institutions that had stood for hundreds of years are challenged and in often cases beyond their capacity to handle the challenge. Um, it changes the whole economy, right? It undermines this feudal system. At the same time, though, disease tended to foster innovation, okay? It tended to lead to work at new medical treatments, um, also just simple approaches, right? Which I also get into in conclusions here. Um, it, it's, you know, we complain because we have been in different stages of quarantine for not quite a year. Um, their world, there were outbreaks of plague on and off for four centuries. And you know, it, it became a sort of part of life, right? Part of the background. Uh, interestingly though, some of the same things apply both to them and us. One thing that drastically reduced the spread of plague was improvements in sanitation. Uh, a second thing really that helps is the development and then acceptance of the germ theory of disease transmission. And we see that uh, with Dr. Yerzen in the 19th century and his isolation of the pathogen. None of that would have occurred had it not been for the acceptance of the germ theory. So that is it.